Welcome, film fans, all you filthy animals out there, to a very, extremely special 30th anniversary retrospective of Chris Columbus's Home Alone. Loisos, this is an episode that has been in the making for probably even longer than our Hocus Pocus episode. This is by far one of my favorite holiday movies of all time and one of my personal favorite movies of all time. And for some reason, we just have never sat down to discuss it on the podcast. But as of today, the release of this special episode for you guys out there, it is the 30th anniversary of the film John Hughes wrote that exploded onto movie screens and gave us one of the most heartfelt, beloved Christmas classics ever to hit the silver screen. So Loisos, and are you excited about this or what? I love this movie. It's it's just I love so, it so much. It's so special. It's something that's a part of I I would have to say probably ninety five percent of households in the United States every single Christmas season. You can't really have Christmas without Kevin McAllister. You can't really have Christmas without Home Alone. You can't do it. It's just not possible. So I I'm super excited that we decided to sit down here and talk about the film. And right off the bat, before we get into the movie the story about how the movie was made, our thoughts on the movie itself. The Epic Film Guys, Loisos, now has a sponsor. <gasps> That's right. This episode is fueled by Evil Tea by the Evil Tea Company. Steeped in darkness, Evil Tea brings a sharp variety of tea flavors featuring robust and creative blends for those tea addicts all over. Use promo code EPICFILMGUYS for 15% off your first order. And right now, Loisos, I'm sipping on the Isle of Demons coconut black tea. This has real coconut shreds in it. Now, I know what you're saying out there. A lot of people don't love coconut. I love coconut. And it's absolutely delicious. It's refreshing. And it gives me that pep in the morning. It's definitely got me wired to discuss one of my favorite movies ever today. Um, and I'm very excited because on Black Friday, Loisos, they're releasing their new Christmas blend, Sleigh Ride. <laughs> featuring some super badass spooky Krampus artwork. That'll be landing on Black Friday. So check it out. Evil Tea at EvilTeaCompany.com. Head over there right now and grab your free sampler. Again, promo code EpicFilmGuys for 15% off. Uh, super awesome that we were able to work something out with those guys. Those are two of my favorite friends from back in the day. Um, one of my old band buddies and another buddy that used to play shows with me when I was only a 16 year old wee lad teenager um, hanging out at metal shows. So those dudes are killing it. And just want to thank them for being a part of the show. But all that aside, I'm like I said, I'm wired off my evil tea, man. What is this episode all about, man? Home Alone, of course, is the story of the world's most privileged and careless parents taking a vacation <laughs> to France. During the holidays and leaving behind their dangerously precocious, psychotic, and bloodthirsty eight-year-old son to inflict extreme degradation and physical torture upon a pair of lovable burglars. And how lovable are they? I mean, you really can't get better than Daniel Stern and Joe Pesci, <laughs> but everyone's great in this movie. And I just have to ask you, this is how we lead off all of these episodes, your history with Home Alone. Now, you know that I'm sitting here holding back on mine, but I just want to hear yours real quick. I know you were not born yet in 1990. You are born of the year of the T-Rex when Jurassic Park came out. So what was your first introduction to this movie? Well, we didn't own Home Alone on VHS <gasps> or DVD growing up. Oh my up. God. So we didn't have a physical media copy until I bought it on Blu-ray when the Blu-ray came out. But um, this is just one of those perennial classics that was always enjoyed on ABC Family. It was broadcast every single year, multiple times on ABC Family. And this is the kind of movie that we would enjoy, you know, over a plate of Christmas cookies or something. It's just one of those movies that was always there, always with me. Um, what about you, Justin? Um, I lived this movie. Like, <laughs> this happened to you? Every fucking day. I wanted to be Kevin McAllister, okay? For Christmas in 1990, I remember going shopping with my mom, and there was a talking Kevin McAllister doll. I wish I still had that. When you pull the string, it was actually Macaulay Culkin's voice saying all the lines from the movie. I could not wait to see this movie. Now, I did not see Home Alone in theaters. 
Usually I'm the one on this show that I've seen everything in the theater opening night. Now I didn't, my parents didn't take me to see this movie because before the movie came out, if you know the history of Home Alone, there wasn't like buzz about this movie. It was just a family Christmas movie. There wasn't buzz. Listen, that was not intended to be a pun, Mr. Sauce, but. um, Buzz, your girlfriend. Woof. woof, Yes. Now that (laughs) that was a line. That was a line that in elementary school, at least in my school, kids would use that quote as a way of saying that chick's gross. I know it's kind of mean in 2020, but. Kids can be cruel. If there's anything that Home Alone teaches us is that kids can be cruel towards one another. But my history was that my grandmother bought me the VHS and. You hear this said a lot in the cinephile world, but I wore that shit the fuck out. Like quite literally, they had to buy like later on when I was in like fifth or sixth grade, another copy of it because I I wore Home Alone out. So that was my introduction to, to it was seeing it on home video and I watched it year round. Whereas now as an adult, I can't watch a Halloween movie unless it's like, you know, if it takes place on Halloween, I can't watch it unless it's Halloween season. Same thing with Christmas. But as a kid, I didn't care. I just wanted to watch that movie constantly. And so that's what led me to being a big fan of it. And ever since, I've literally watched it pretty much every single year around the Christmas season. I introduced it to my daughter, who's a big fan of it. And you actually came over the other night and we peeped out the brand new <laughs> Here we go. 4K Ultra HD transfer released by Disney. Um, if you have Disney Plus, it's on there right now in the new version. Uh, it didn't have much fanfare. And I won't lie to you, ladies and gentlemen, the covers, the new artwork they did for this edition are terrible. I picked up the steelbook myself, but Loisos, as you saw with your own beautiful blue eyes, it looked gorgeous, didn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it brings out all the colors. There are details I never noticed before. There's a moment, especially, that I wanted to mention where Kevin's mother is calling the police station. And the police officer is speaking with her on the phone has a stack of donuts <laughs> on, on his desk. And I never noticed that before. It's a detail I, I, I never saw until we were watching it in ultra high definition clarity. And just for uh, comparison's sake, when I got home, I put in the DVD that's included in the uh, you didn't. Blu-ray combo pack. You didn't. That is one of the worst looking DVDs I've ever seen. Listen. Ever, ever seen. So the, the the jump in quality, if you are just watching Home Alone on DVD, you're not really watching Home Alone. <laughs> no, you're definitely not. So again, if you have the technology, peep that new transfer. It's absolutely gorgeous. Now, I don't know, Loisos, if 20th Century Fox had had this on the palette and had worked on this before Disney took over and bought them, or if this is a, a straight up Disney transfer. If it is Disney, they've definitely improved um, with dealing with catalog titles um, and the new 4K medium. It looked absolutely gorgeous. So blew me away, at least. It was the perfect way to watch the film. Um, but all that aside, we got to get into this movie. And you can't get into this movie without the amazing opening and those iconic main title themes by none other than John Williams. Loisos, how great is this score? It's amazing. Well, especially the way the film opens, it really sets the mood. Of course, John Williams is one of the greatest film composers to ever live, and he's so adept at balancing the mysterious and the magical and capturing that sonically. And you could definitely hear the early sounds of a, of a future John Williams and Chris Columbus collaboration in Harry Potter, the chimes of the Home Alone theme kind of being reminiscent of Hedwig's theme from Harry Potter. So I, I love this score. Of course, we have to mention the somewhere in my memory theme, the leitmotif that plays throughout just gives you that warm, fuzzy Christmas feeling. Yeah. And the funny thing about this is that John Williams was not the original composer on the film. It was a gentleman, Bruce Broughton, who unfortunately couldn't make the film. But fortunately for us, he got his ass booted off that shit because we got John Williams Um and Chris Columbus just brought up the idea of having Williams as a joke. He didn't think it. He just said, hey, how about John Williams? At the time, Williams was only thought about with either a Spielberg movie movie or a big budget fair. They sent a rough cut of the movie to Williams and he absolutely loved it. So it, it changed from like this little low budget Christmas family movie to this kind of a, a bigger feel to it because of what Williams did. I don't think this movie could be anywhere near as successful as it is without the music. I mean, that main home alone theme, as you said, perfectly, it has this slight cheery 
heartfelt yet slightly menacing feel to it in some way. It's kind of spooky. There's a lot of spooky feelings in, in the score here. Um, and then you have like something like the, the track Holiday Flight, which when you see the family realizing that they're, you know, hey, they missed their, their alarm and they're going to be late to the flight. It's frantic, energetic, upbeat. It's, it's kind of crazy. And then, of course, you've got Attack on the House, which has even spookier themes, almost like veering off into horror, his his horror stuff. Like you hear a little bit of Jaws in there, here and there. But um, yes, definitely. I mean, for me, at least, it's definitely in the top 10 John Williams scores, if not top five. It's hard. I've never actually sat down and, and ranked John Williams scores. But for me, at least, the one that tugs on my heartstrings the most, it's definitely got to be Home Alone in there somewhere. But in the film itself opens once the opening titles end with a very nice establishing shot of my household. Yes. The McAllister <laughs> house, which for years since we've met, I've always for our listeners that aren't aware of this voice house lives in a brick house and he lives in a really nice neighborhood. And when it's, I met him, I'm like, I'm like, you're rich, bro. You live in the McAllister house. It's nowhere near as uh, opulent as the neighborhood that Kevin McAllister and his family live, which makes me wonder how this family affords this place. I know it's a, point of debate amongst people who talk about this movie but i we got to get this out of the way what does kevin's father do for a living i don't think it's ever mentioned never ever once what his father or mother does they've got how many kids they've got a huge family well i think we can assume that the mother is maybe a fashion fashion designer because of the abundant amount of mannequins scattered throughout the house very good point i didn't i never thought of that before but this family is absolutely loaded you mentioned they have five kids. They have this very spacious home, beautiful home. Uh, they can afford to send 15 people on a first class flight to France where they serve cocktails in real crystal glasses. <laughs> <laughs> Dude. Though earlier on, when the pizza boy comes, they're kind of balking at the idea of $120 for pizza. But I, I, I looked over at my wife when we were watching the other night. I'm like, that actually doesn't seem that bad in 2020 terms. No. For that many pizzas? So I know it's a a common complaint of John Hughes' scripts that his characters are often very privileged, but this is a level of of opulence bordering on the obscene. Well, when they... And and this is but one of many things we'll have to suspend our disbelief for, because Mr. McAllister's occupation is never revealed to us. Let's just say he's a fucking millionaire. The house itself, which I'll list the actual address, I saw 671 Lincoln Ave in the North Shore village of Winnicott, Illinois... 60093 for those of you film locations lovers like myself out there if you want to go check it out um i looked up the value it's at like two point something million last i looked um the current owners unfortunately lois house have removed the inside driveway the iconic driveway where you see the pizza boy driving up fast and hitting the statue over and over again um and they put a fence around the house so Film locations lovers, I get it. So I was supposed to go and check it out actually this month. I was supposed to go to my boy Dave's wedding. It was scheduled for this month, and the wife and I were going to go out and check out this film location and some of the others from the film. I still plan to do it. I don't know when, but um, the house still looks the same from the outside. You just can't stand in front of it or anything like that. Um, But I always loved that meme that floats around this time of year where it's like that whole saying, like, you know, you're getting old when you watch Home Alone and you wonder how much the mortgage is on the house they live in. (laughs) It's true, though. I mean, I never thought of it as a kid. I mean, because I lived in a small house, nowhere near that. But when you're seeing all the stuff they have in there, um, even though the whole inside of the house is a set built in it within a gymnasium at a school, um, they're loaded. They're fucking rich. The opening, I think, wherein the entire family is packing and preparing for their Paris trip is... I think suitably chaotic. You know, <laughs> it really captures the stress of leaving on a big trip, like the night before you're leaving on a big trip. And also, as I mentioned earlier, how cruel children can be towards one another. Everyone's calling each other names like Flemwad. And um, what do the French say, Justin? Les incompetents. <laughs> That's right. And they're telling each other to shut up. I mean, it's pretty prickly language for siblings to be hurling at each other but sometimes that's the way family be you know yep i wouldn't let you sleep in my room if you were growing on my ass <laughs> um no for real and it's a great introduction to the character of kevin McAllister. so we because the movie opens we have to know who these characters are and we see that he's kind of like the odd man out he's the black sheep he's obviously the youngest in that family that lives in that household i think fuller may be his, the same age as him or younger but 
that we see how all these characters are, are interacting with him. And, you know, he seems kind of helpless, like his parents do a lot for him. So he's definitely privileged in that way. He hasn't been taught a lot. I mean, think about it. If you're a father and you have that many kids, it's hard. It's hard to get family time in with every single one of them. So I totally understand the way they're presenting the character here. But we also see that he he's a trouble causer here. But Buzz is the instigator and causes him to get in trouble which leads him to having to sleep in the attic. He doesn't have to sleep on the Hydra bed with Fuller, unfortunately, because you know what happens when Fuller drinks lots of Pepsi, because that motherfucker will wet that bed. Something I thought about when I watched it this time was that the entire movie would not have happened if Fuller didn't wet the bed. Because they send Kevin up there alone, and they Fuller uh, presumably sleeps somewhere else in the house. So I think they may have forgotten one kid. They may have left Kevin behind, but I don't think they would have forgotten two. No, they wouldn't have. No. I mean, we, we have to discuss this and get out of the way. The whole crux of this movie lies on the shoulders of a series of contrivances. Well, contrivances, but the whole instance of when they're they're getting all the people, the whole family into these two vans, they're counting them all. And the neighbor kid comes over. This annoying, obnoxious little neighbor kid comes over. Does this have four-wheel drive? Does this have automatic, trans- automatic transmission? If that kid didn't come over and bother those those van drivers and, you know, bring me back something French, if he wasn't there with his head turned, the whole movie wouldn't have happened. They would be like, oh, no, Kevin's still in the house. Go get him. Right. And I think, like I said, it's a series of contrivances that I think we just have to accept in order to buy the premise. I mean, the power's knocked out, so the family oversleeps. Kevin spills milk on his plane ticket, so no one notices that it's not counted at the airport. Um, You know, as you mentioned, the kid from across the street. So I think there are two major things that help us to buy this premise. Uh, Number one, I think, is the direction of Chris Columbus. Um, I I think this is an impeccably directed movie. And originally, Chris Columbus wasn't supposed to direct this movie at all. And you can go into that a little bit. The opening with the family, there's a lot of shouting there's a lot of overlapping dialogue, actors moving back and forth in the frame all at the same time. Dude, the blocking, the way they blocked that scene must have taken like days. Yeah. And then you have like the camera like gliding throughout all the chaos. So everything had to be choreographed just so. And I think especially working with child actors is, I mean, that's an immense challenge. And I think Columbus shows that he has a special skill in finding and harnessing that natural talent. But my point is, I think it helps us to understand why this family is so crazy because it, there's just constant activity going on and it's easy to get lost in the shuffle. Uh, so I, I think that kind of helps, but also I think none of this would work if you didn't have the right cast, but the actors completely sell you on it. You don't doubt it for a minute. You definitely so, don't doubt it. And But going back to what you were saying about Columbus, I also think the movie wouldn't be what it is without him. He was such a passionate screenwriter i mean the guy wrote fucking gremlins for god's sakes you know what i mean he 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 wanted to be a director and he really wanted to make this movie and john hughes made it happen but first he was on another christmas movie another iconic classic christmas movie which we may cover on another future episode none other than national lampoon's christmas vacation he was actually attached he was there on set to direct that movie And we have Chevy Chase to thank for two classic Christmas movies, because if he wasn't such a fucking prick, then Chris Columbus wouldn't have wanted to leave Christmas Vacation and come over and direct Home Alone. So we thank you, Chevy Chase, for two amazing Christmas movies. But Chris Columbus, who apparently was obsessed with Christmas, directed Home Alone like a child from a child's point of view. And he had this childlike quality. If you ever watch the behind the scenes, the way you see him interacting with the cast of children in the movie, he's getting down on their level. He kneels down. He's like one of them. He's talking to them as equals, but in a very childlike way. And I think that's what brings out all of the performance in these kids. They all seem really real. I mean, yes, the movie's very Hollywood. If you look at it from a certain perspective, but all these kids act just like all the kids I knew in 1990. You know what I mean? So I think he had this passion. He had directed adventures in babysitting, which I myself love. Then he had a huge flop with his Elvis movie. Um, but John Hughes believed in him, and I just, I'm just i so very thankful that we got the right guy to make this movie because I feel like a lesser director, Lois Austin, or maybe even a bigger director may have just phoned it in on this, like, oh, it's just a family Christmas movie, and paint by numbers, Columbus really made this something special. I think he has a talent for choosing the right kid actors. We, can, we see that with the Harry Potter movies. 
Um, and Macaulay Culkin as Kevin McAllister. Holy shit, what a find. I think it's easy to see why he became such a massive star because I'm I'm being 100% serious here. This is like a performance for the ages. <laughs> of course it is. And it was his first big performance. Um, he was a dancer when he was younger. And the whole reason this movie happened is because he was in Uncle Buck, which I loved as a kid. I still love it now. Another John Hughes production. John Hughes was on the set of that movie and he was like, what would it be like if I made a movie about a nine-year-old kid? And he wrote the movie for Macaulay Culkin. But strangely enough, when Columbus came on, he's like, I kind of want to make this my own thing. He did do a rewrite of the script and he said, I want to find my own kid. He did test Macaulay and then they tested apparently like hundreds of kids and it kept going back to Macaulay. And luckily they chose the right kid because again, think about what this movie would have been if they put anybody else in that role. Like think about, for example, Elijah Wood was around the same age, right around that time frame. Seth Green, any one of these child actors around that time, the movie would not be what it is without Macaulay Culkin. I mean, he's absolutely fucking magnetic. He's lovable. He's got great charisma and great wit. Any other kid in this role could have come off as being annoying or obnoxious. Some of the stuff he has to say and some of the stuff he has to do. You you have to really root for this kid in this movie. And you do because of his performance. Yeah, I was going to mention that because much like, you know, John Hughes wrote Ferris Bueller. So much like Ferris Bueller, Kevin as written could come off as a total brat that you just want to strangle. <laughs> but just as Matthew Broderick brought such an impish earnestness to his role Macaulay does to his and I think the movie would fall apart without that performance 100% I mean they definitely chose the right person for the role here which again created the magic of what Home Alone is because we know that every kid in America wanted to see this movie because of him everyone loved him and families and adults adored him he had all of those qualities that you want in your lead your lead kid actor um and he performed amazingly. I mean, there are scenes, I think my favorite, not jumping ahead too far, but one of my favorite scenes that shows the kind of chops this kid has is when he goes to the church and old man Marley comes in, which is a character we have to get to here soon. They did all of that in one take. And you see the level of performance that he's bringing to this character. It's absolutely insane. A kid, he was so young and very little training what he brought to the character of Kevin McAllister. I mean, uh, now I know the rumors about Macaulay and what he's talked about throughout the years that his dad was like extremely stern, would be on the set every single day, um, was actually very cruel to him and he would be punished if he didn't do well. So, I mean, that may be part of it, but again, going back to the precision that he put into this character, I, I, can't see anybody else into this role. I mean, Macaulay Culkin is this movie. You're watching this movie because of him. Absolutely. But also, I mean, the other performances as well are, are all fantastic. You've Catherine O'Hara. We have to talk about her because she rides that fine line because not only is she brilliantly funny, but you feel her increasing panic and desperation to, to get home to her son. You feel that in your very soul when you watch this movie. And there's a delivery of a line that I love when she's when she says, what kind of mother am I? That The way she delivers that line is funny, but there's genuine fear and shock and shame there too. So there's so much going on. It's such a multifaceted performance. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and you're rooting for her the entire time for her to get back to Kevin, even though at the same time, you're she makes like, some, she makes some questionable decisions. She does, but you're, she's you're, probably not thinking straight because she's been up, uh, whatever she says, like she hasn't 50, slept. Yeah. She hasn't slept. Hours, yeah. All she's concerned with is getting back to her kid. And you got to think there's got to be some level of regret there because of how she treated Kevin before they left. You know what I mean? With all that kind of chaos going on. I understand with family situations like this and going for holidays, you're stressed out. You just, you just want your kid to go away. Seriously, stop bothering me. You've got this huge trip, all the stress on your shoulders, and your little one is bothering you. Go to bed. Get out of here. Okay, now I could kind of try to relax here and get prepared for our trip tomorrow. And then you got to think how she feels about that when she finds out, oh my God, like, not only did I leave him, but I left him with like the most negative feeling right before I left him. Um, she was kind of mean to him. You know what I mean? He was a little, he was, again, he was a little prick to her, you know? I hope I never see any of you for the rest of my life, but I hope you don't mean that. 
but well I, I think the overall arc of the movie is their kind of redemption and forgiveness of each other of course of course i mean that's what happens a lot people say things they don't mean and when you get upset especially when you're a kid you definitely say things you don't mean and parents do as well um but rightfully said there louis sauce i mean she's definitely another very important component in this movie but but this movie would not be what it is without the wet bandits themselves. Joe Pesci as Harry and Daniel Stern as Marv. I mean, legit. iconic, iconic duo. Dude, you, you you cannot beat the chemistry that these two have on screen. Seriously, two peas in a pod. And it's hard to believe that Daniel Stern originally, you know, he auditioned for the movie. They wanted him for the movie. And it was supposed to be a six week shoot. When they learned it was going to be an eight week shoot, Daniel Stern was like, well, am I going to get a raise? Am I going to get paid more? And at the time it was still a Warner brothers picture. And he was like, well, I'm not going to do it unless I get paid more money. So he left the production and they brought in character actor, Daniel Roebuck. And the chemistry was not there after a few shots of seeing Pesci and Roebuck acting together. Columbus was like, listen, we absolutely need to bring we need to bring Stern back into this thing. I can't, again, another component that you can't imagine the film being anybody else, but the original Daniel Stern, just so amazing in this role. Um, and I guess apparently Pesci and Stern had been friends because they had worked together on a previous movie. But thinking back to 1990, this is post Goodfellas. <laughs> it's so fucking hard to imagine Joe Pesci agreeing to do a movie like Home Alone. When you think about it in retrospect, isn't it kind of crazy? It is, yeah, especially because he was so identified with these Academy Award characters. winner, Academy Award winner, you know? Absolutely. So, um, of course, you see him throughout the film censor himself uh, and kind of make up this gibberish profanity language uh, in lieu of his normal profanity. <laughs> I know. I, what, what I love is that uh, when he agreed to be in the movie, he told director Chris Columbus, he said, anytime I read a script that's not a Scorsese script, I add a fuck every four words in order for me to get the rhythm of the character. There, and- there's a part in this where he he almost slips. He almost curses. There's a part where he's like, you little brat. Like he, sa- he starts to say it. You, yeah. you hear it. it well, that's why like you said Joe came up with that cartoon cursing gibberish. Such a fridger. When I was a kid, dude, I used to do that all the time because I knew if I cursed, I'd get my ass whooped by my dad. So I'd just be like, oh, such a fridger. Such a son of a. It just, it was, it doesn't, it's not real words. It's just a bunch of sounds put together. Yeah. But I think the portrayal of the wet bandits is note perfect because they're bumbling and they're fun to watch, but they're not too bumbling so that they stop they cease to become a threat they each have their moments to be silly but they still bring a distinct darkness to the movie after a certain point they're really trying to murder kevin they say it like i'm gonna kill that kid and you believe it there's a real sense of danger i think leading up to the point in the film which we have to get to the fact that i mean you and i were watching this movie the other night and i turned to you and i was like this movie shouldn't have worked on a technical level There's two completely different movies in here. There's a family comedy slash Christmas movie with slight dramatic effect. And then there's like a home invasion thriller. Then there's a home invasion thriller slash cartoon three stooges short shoved in there. And it is an absolute miracle when you dissect this movie that it actually works. It's insane. It shouldn't work on paper. And um, I think, I think it just appeals to kids because it taps into so many palpable childhood fears. You have right you know, fears that I've had as a kid being forgotten by your family, the creepy neighbor that all the kids whisper these urban legends about. You have the dark basement and you have burglars. I, I had that fear as a kid. Like if a burglar broke into my house, what would I do? And so this is like the ultimate power fantasy for kids because it's taking yeah. those fears and making this little kid a hero that you can get behind. And also giving kids the goofy Looney Tunes slapstick that they're, they're going to laugh at. And also the sentimentality of Christmas. So it's all these elements that seem disparate. But then when you bring them together and you have people at the helm who actually care to make a quality product, you, ha- you get home alone. <laughs> Again, still to this day, and thinking back to 1990 and what kind of films were being released at that time, slapstick was dead. 
at that point. You didn't see that kind of humor really in movies. And that brought it back. After that, in the early 90s, then you would see other movies employ the same slapstick style of comedy again. And it became basically the norm for mostly throughout the 90s. Whenever you saw bad guys, they acted the same way as you would see Harry and Marv acting. They'd slip and fall. They'd be goofy. Um, But you're correct in saying they are scary, though. They're very threatening when they need to be. Um, And they again, having someone like Joe Pesci in there, when you watch it as an adult, say you took your kid to see the movie in the theater like, oh, dude, that's Joe Pesci. You're thinking Raging Bull. You're thinking Goodfellas. You're like that fucking true badass. So you know that this guy can cause trouble because you've seen him kill people in other movies. And he just lends himself to that kind of character. But we're going to get to the slapstick element of the movie later. We have to discuss the movie that Kevin is told he's not allowed to watch. (laughs) Right. So with his family gone, Kevin takes advantage of being home alone by doing what every kid would do. I'm eating junk and watching rubbish. You better come out and stop stop me. me. Yeah. I mean, what else would you do? (laughs) Same thing I did. Grab that VHS of that movie that your mom or dad said you couldn't watch. And you're going to put that in. Ooh, they're gone. Every kid did this again, going back to that fantasy element you referred to angels with filthy souls, which, which seems to be the greatest film never made. Yeah. I want to see the entire movie. I read a rumor not long ago that they were actually going to, try to make the movie an actual movie i'd pay to watch that in an instant yeah too bad ac ain't in charge no more i mean (laughs) you've got johnny this gangster gangster sitting behind a desk in an office who meets snakes a gangster sent by ac the head gangster and this movie's pg dude it's pg home alone but when you watch like johnny Gunning down he snakes. He blows them away, yeah. He blows them away. You see a shot of snakes on the ground, like, <laughs> jumping up and down because he's getting blown away. I mean, there's no blood or anything. It's supposed to be an old movie, a black and white movie, obviously. A 1938 film, to be exact. But as a kid, I always loved that part. I'm like, I thought it was a real movie until I was an adult. I didn't realize it was a movie that they made. They, they you know, made it for the movie itself. With cardboard sets and everything. Yeah, no, it, it, it's perfect. And I love while he's watching it, he's eating the biggest bowl of ice cream that I've ever seen. It says a lot that as an adult, instead of saying, oh, I wish I had that big bowl of ice cream, I find myself thinking, you're going to get a stomach ache. Dude, it's the same thing I was just thinking. Seriously. And he's got, you know, the kid just eats tons of junk. He's sitting there chowing down on crunch gators and soda. I know that voice. Now, what's a, what's a crunch gator? They were made by Fritos. They were chips, dude. Mm. I had crunch gators, just like tater skins, man. Shit they used to make back in the 90s that they don't make anymore. Dinosaur Dracula, where are you at? I know he's got probably a listing all the details of the ingredients on this shit, but no, man. I love that movie as a kid. I wanted to watch it, and then I didn't realize until I was an adult that it wasn't a real movie. And it's just funny that they decided to go with that, because obviously in 1990, the kind of movie you would probably end up watching is like a slasher or something, or a horror movie, but it's this old-school black-and-white gangster movie, so... It's just, it's just another one of those elements about Home Alone that I absolutely love. But the other thing about that movie is that Kevin uses it to fool people. Which requires a lot of coordination on his part. Pausing it, unpausing it, rewinding it, fast-forwarding it. He'd, he has to, I guess he would have to know the movie by heart in order to perfectly Or at least coordinate. that scene. At least that scene. At least that scene. And... I guess we can now talk about things about the movie that require quite the level of suspension of disbelief to believe, because you believe that he'd have to watch that scene enough times to be able to predict what the pizza guy is going to say and do, and then time his pausing and unpausing to match. Like that's, that takes an insane amount of coordination that I don't exactly buy, but it's a really funny scene anyway. So you, you kind of well, let that it go. And- that and you're okay, dude. Seriously, anyone that has like a loud surround sound system, even the lo- the loud surround sound systems that were in 1990, it was a tiny kitchen TV. Okay, even if you had it up all the way, those gunshots wouldn't sound like actual gunshots. But when he tricks Marv later on, he has the firecrackers. That I could buy. That sure. I could totally buy because yeah. he put the firecrackers right next to the door. There's a for some reason there's a doggy door. I didn't see a dog in the house, but maybe their dog died prior to the events oh, of the film. But That's so depressing. yeah, 
I always thought it was fun. I always thought it was funny as a kid. Yes, huge suspension of disbelief with those scenes, but I mean, it's great how the movie's introduced early on in the movie. It's a movie I can't watch. I'm not allowed. Uncle Frank said, I'm not allowed to watch it. And then he watches it. He's scared. He calls out for his mom, which I've definitely, I mean, that's something that as a kid, when you'd watch something you weren't supposed to and you got scared, that happens. You're like, oh shit, now I know I wasn't allowed to watch this shit. Right. But then he uses it throughout the film to trick not one, but two people. Now, in another movie, that could end up being overdone. Like, oh, they're doing this again. But when he does it with Marv, it's even better. Because you see how bumbling he is as he trips and falls over himself. Then he gets back in the car and he's like, there's some guy named Snakes in there. They beat us to the punch, you know, like there's they beat us to the house. They they robbed the house. And it's it's a it's one of those moments that you just gotta love in Home Alone. Does Kevin have any friends? Well, Loisos, that's something I was wondering too, because when you get left home alone, yeah, you're like, yeah, I'm gonna eat popcorn and jump up and down on the bed, and I'm gonna watch movies I'm not allowed to eat and eat like a fucking whole gallon of ice cream myself. But when he starts getting like he starts feeling like he's homesick for his family. Wouldn't you be like, I'm going to go to my friend's house and tell them I was left home alone. Now I get that the whole block we're led to believe that like the, basically the, the entire block went away for Christmas, which also requires you to <laughs> suspend your disbelief. I guess uh, that's what rich people did in 1990, bro. I guess they're so. like they're going to go to France or the UK or they're going to California or Florida uh, where the McAllisters go in home alone part two. But I mean, wouldn't you, if you had a friend and you were left home alone, you're like, well, my parents aren't here. The phone lines aren't working. I Even should... though he was able to use the phone to call for pizza. So if he could call for pizza, then he could call for the police. Yeah. Well, I never <laughs> even thought of that until you mentioned that. Because there was no online ordering. How else would you have ordered pizza back then? There was literally no other way other than to walk in and order it or call. So seriously, I guess he just didn't care. He just wanted to be home alone by himself. I think I think that's why they have the scene of Kevin stealing the toothbrush er, accidentally, but he he takes the toothbrush from the store and says, "I'm a criminal." So maybe because shoplifter, maybe he thinks he's going to get arrested if he calls the police. I don't know, but uh, again, it's something you have to just gonna kind of be like, "Okay, he's not going to call the police. That's fine." <laughs> well, then when the cops actually come, that cop sucks. Yeah, now, he's, he's just not like, doing his job. There's nobody home count your kids again you know like i'm like whoa dude seriously and he what if what if something happened to kevin like what if he was dead and that's why he wasn't answering the door for all he knew something could have happened well if, if you know actual probable cause laws i'm pretty sure they have to have probable cause in order to go in sure so i don't think i don't i mean depends on the situation if they think someone has been harmed or injured or murdered or whatever they could go in but i don't think it, the circumstances in this movie they're like oh the lights are all on and no one's answering. There's just nobody home. But isn't it more presumable that something would have happened to the kid rather than the mother just counted wrong? <laughs> like, I don't know. When the police well, officer was... says, like, to tell, tell her to count her kids again. I'm like, she probably, you don't think she has? Well, she was frantic. They probably told the cop, like, wait, man, this, this bitch is crazy, man. She's freaking out <laughs> over here. She's on something. You never know. It's around the holidays. I mean, they're not painting law enforcement in a very positive light here in the movie but again boy sauce the movie wouldn't happen we wouldn't have these things we love unless we just suspended disbelief for all these things but yeah i mean honestly that's i mean if i was a kid and i got left home alone maybe for a day or so i'd be like sweet i'm gonna live it up but then i would probably feel i mean he obviously gets scared i'm gonna go to my friend's house but yeah apparently kevin has no friends i don't know if later him mentioning he almost got beat up because he had a sweater with a big bird on it meant anything if that was any indication that he has no friends but i mean come on everyone's got at least one friend right and also this kid presumably doesn't know how to pack a suitcase by himself but he can blueprint orchestrate and set all these here it comes (laughs) in a matter of i'll be generous and i'll say maybe 24 hours yeah i mean (laughs) That's one thing about the character development in this movie, or lack thereof, that, I mean, when you look at it as an adult, you're never led to believe in any other part of this movie that Kevin's this, like, whiz kid that is extremely intelligent. We know he's a good shot with the BB gun. Yeah, he's a good shot with a BB gun when he's shooting that Michael Jordan figure down to the laundry chute. But, I mean, you don't ever think, like, whoa, this kid's super smart. You don't see, like... 
models in his room built or or anything to convey that this kid likes to create things or yeah. he has a creative mind. We Nothing know that at he, all. We know that he's precocious, but uh, we can we can only we can only assume that he's just a psychopath. Yeah, like <laughs> I'm gonna hurt these dudes. You scared me. You know, this Break is into it. My house, you'll get your scalp burned off. This is it. Don't get scared now. You know, the, I mean, but you want to root for this kid. You've seen these burglars. I mean, on more than one occasion when they chase him down the street in the van, he has to hide at the church in the nativity scene. And then later on when he's just trying to put up a Christmas tree, these bad guys are stalking him. He sees him through the window. Yes. You're like, Oh man, you want to see him. You want to see him get theirs, man. And this is when the tone shifts wildly and it becomes a remake of straw dogs for kids. That's right. And cause this lo- is a, the, the, the whole scenario of the wet bandits breaking in is a horror film. If you take it at face value. So you have these real life stakes established, but then that's in sharp contrast to this really goofy physical comedy, which I think this movie is a masterclass in physical comedy. But I think what makes the physical comedy work is that it looks like these booby traps hurt a lot. (laughs) Extremely, extremely dangerous shit here. Um, Troy Brown, who did Joe Pesci's stunts, he was the stunt double there. Dude, there is now a fall in Hollywood that's called the home alone because of what he established on this movie prior to home alone, the kind of falls and stunts you would see here were, were not done the way they were done prior to this movie. When, when you see these dudes fall, they're falling for real. They actually look like they're slipping on ice and falling flat on their back on pure cement. There's a part where Troy Brown looks like he lands on his neck and he could have broken his neck in that one scene where you, where Harry slips on the ice and falls, that looks like it was really painful. And I don't blame Chris Columbus because he said in an interview when he was shooting these scenes, he would look away from the monitor because he just couldn't bear to... It's really a testament to how these were shot. By cinematographer Julio Macat, yep, who who apparently, Loisos, watched like a shitload of cartoons to prep for all the gags just to learn the proper kind of comic timing that would have to occur when, you know, you'd see like, Wiley Coyote getting hit over the head with a frying pan, for example, or something like that. Well, yeah, it's all about it, it's all about context and how it's composed. Because in, in a different context, this is horrifying. Like y- there are YouTube videos where they replace the music, or they get a real doctor. They consult a doctor about like what kind of real life injuries the wet bandits would sustain. They'd be fucking uh, dead, dude. Let's face it. They'd be dead like, time- within five five minutes of any of these occurring to you. Many times over. So. Um, it's really, like I said, a masterclass in, in physical comedy, because if, if something went wrong, if one thing went wrong, the audience would be wincing and not laughing. Well, that's the thing. You can't look away Yeah, be- because of how it's presented. If it was presented in any other context, you might, you might not be looking away. Like think about when you take a girl to go see a horror movie, not, not saying all girls. I know a lot of my friends that are chicks love fucking horror and kills and shit, but the traditional girl, you take, they, they close their eyes when a scary part comes up or a kill happens. In this movie, you're like, you can't wait to see these guys get shot in the head of the BB gun or for them to grab a handle and have it horribly fucking burned. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's funny. But the tone of this movie shifts so much, again, going back to this, it is a miracle that it works because it's nothing like the rest of the movie. I mean, you mentioned earlier that slapstick comedy was dead when this film came out. I think slapstick comedy is dead now. It comes and goes away because you have, like, of course, the great silent Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton, and then it kind of went out of style. Peter Sellers in the Pink Panther films brought it back, went out of style. So I hope we're rounding the corner on another new era of slapstick comedy because you don't see movies like this being made now. And I feel like if you did, you'd have to have a disclaimer flashing on the screen the whole time. Don't try this at home. Yeah, I know. Well, because, I mean, because I saw the, the three stooges movie that came out, I think 2011. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Well, there are funny parts to that movie and they really capture the essence of the three stooges until the ending 
where they literally have these guys come out and say, we're actors, this isn't real, all of the weapons we're using are foam weapons, and I'm like, that takes away from the humor of it if you explain, don't try this at home, kids, it's not real, it's all make-believe. Kids know that, they're not dumb. Unless I'm mistaken, were there lots of uh, news reports of kids hitting each other with you know, hammers and shooting each other with BB guns after Home Alone came out? Uh, to be honest with you, I did do a little bit of research before we decided to do this episode, and I tried to find something. I remember being a kid and my grandmother showing me a newspaper that mentioned something about a kid being influenced by Home Alone and someone got hurt like they hit their kid sister over the head with something. No. But, <laughs> that I mean, it's possible. But, I mean, again, dude, a lot of that shit is just publicized trash. They just add a name to it to, to, to place blame. When I was a kid, I didn't watch this and want to hit anybody. But as an adult, I do watch the Three Stooges and want to poke you in the fucking eyes. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, you know, yeah. See, for me, like I'm a huge Three Stooges fan. I grew up on that. That's one of my favorite forms of comedy. So this movie is right up my alley. And I can't tell you, man, enough. When you and I sat down and watched this movie the other night, you and I were like almost in tears and laughter at some of these gags. I mean, it's it never it never gets old. When Chris Columbus set out to make this movie, he even said, like, I don't want us to be embarrassed 15 years, 20 years after this movie comes out. When this movie airs on TV, I don't want to be embarrassed for any of us that we made a bad movie or the movie didn't age well. And luckily for him, it did age well. This movie's universally praised and it never gets old. But I gotta ask you though. And I'm going to put you on the spot here because we did not discuss including this in our discussion. What is your favorite booby trap in the movie? It's got to be the blowtorch because my favorite part of it is that Pesci doesn't immediately dodge the flame. He just stands there and screams. (laughs) That dude, that look on his face. So I can't believe I'm going to say this, but that's my favorite too. Just because the expression on Joe Pesci's face, (laughs) the way he sells it, it's hilarious. Then, he runs out, the stunt guy's got the actual flames on his head, and he puts his head into the snow, and just the element of him lifting his head out, and he touches the the, the burned scalp, and you hear that tss, tss. Perfect. Like, ooh, ooh, ooh. That's my favorite as well. Okay, so we, all right, that's our favorite Harry one. Let's do a Marv one then. All right, I'll tell you my favorite Marv one. Go ahead. It's the iron to the face. Oh, yeah, of course. But you can't, you can't deny the one that probably has the most impact that I'm sure that when audiences saw this movie for the first time in theaters back in 1990, people probably cringed at the, the, the image of it is the nail in the stairs. That in the basement. is fucking psychotic. Ugh, I just well, dude, cringe his, thinking his about feet it. are already bare. He's got like the tar and sticky stuff, the black shit all over his feet. As soon as you see him about to step on it, you immediately feel that in your foot. My foot just starts to, Ooh, I, you know what I mean? Like, that's probably the most impactful one out of all of them. Which, uh, again, all of this required a lot of planning on Kevin's part because he knew that one of their shoes was going to be caught by the tar. They would have to make it upstairs through the tar or at least make it outside somehow and then place the crushed ornaments by the window, leave the window open so that one of them would come back in and step on the ornaments with their bare feet. So this took a lot of coordination from Why Kevin us? McAllister. Why the hell did you take your shoes off? Why the hell are you dressed like a chicken? So we have to mention, though, probably the most iconic gag in the entire movie is the paint cans. And that's the one that most experts always li- list as the most dangerous. Instant death. Instant death. Instant and and death. in the movie, Better Watch Out, they they even reference Home Alone uh, and they do the paint <laughs> the paint can gag. And it has a very, very different outcome. Yeah, it does. I mean, dude, your head will be fucking lopped off. Let's face yeah. it. These yeah. guys got to be two tough, badass motherfuckers to be able to withstand all this. Even if it were empty, it would cause you severe pain. It would knock you out, dude. You'd get a yeah. concussion immediately. With that most that much momentum from the top of the stairs, I mean, you know. But that leads me to my, probably the part in the movie that as a kid, at least, Loy Sauce, I always looked forward to for some reason. And it's the way that John Williams' music builds and builds and it's the first instance of them actually almost coming close to getting Kevin. They, they fall over the tripwire and then Marv's got his hand on Kevin's foot and then he finds Buzz's pet tarantula axle 
and the the music just swells and swells and then he puts it on his face and we hear like literally the equivalent of Janet Lee's psycho scream <laughs> out of Daniel Stern. I just love that. And did they put the actual the real tarantula? It's real. It's not animatronic. They put a real tarantula on his face. Now apparently, I didn't even know this until recently, that was supposed to be an animatronic tarantula that they put on his face. It, and they said, well, it didn't look real. So Daniel Stern was concerned. He's like, well, did you take the poison little prickers out of the tarantula? They were like, well, if we did that, the, the spider would die. Mm-hmm. So no. So they put a real tarantula on his face. For me, it's just the funniest moment in the movie. I don't know why I love that so much. Probably just because of his, his blood-curdling scream, but. Yeah, it's perfect. So, so we have all this mayhem. We have all this chaos inside the house. Again contrasted with the the kind of syrupy sentimentality of the movie because this is a christmas movie and like any good christmas movie it should warm your heart and i think that's what what kind of sends home alone into the stratosphere of being a good movie into a great one because you have the scene where kevin's wandering through the neighborhood alone i think is this after he goes to visit santa Yes, it is. That's okay. Great. He goes, goes to visit Santa. And he's beginning to miss his family. And he's watching from outside as he's looking into the windows of these neighboring houses. And everyone's together for the holidays. And he's alone. I really feel for Kevin at this moment. And then for comfort and solace, he you know, enters the church. And we talked about this a little bit earlier. But um, thank God for this scene. because, And thank God for Chris Columbus that he wrote Old Man Marley into the script. Yes, it's one of my favorite elements of the entire movie. Because you you have this beautiful setting. You have the church. You have the choir in the background. Beautiful. And then you have this scene where Kevin and Old Man Marley, who is built up as this very fearsome... The South Bend Shovel Slayer. Yeah. <laughs> ...character. And you have them just talking, and they learn something from each other, and they grow in the span of that, that scene. And there's something spiritual about that scene, and it never fails to make me emotional every time. Because the film up until that point has been pretty much your standard wish fulfillment kids fantasy. But this scene in the church really allows the film to settle down, breathe for a little bit, before we get to the hijinks with the wet bandits. And it's also just a great bit of character writing, too. Yeah, and it's that scene that I mentioned earlier on that Macaulay Culkin really showcased, you know, the gravitas of his performance but being able to do that in one take and the chemistry that they had here, we, we can't get through this discussion without talking about Robert's Blossom as old man Marley. And I love the element that we kind of looked over earlier on in the discussion where that urban legend now, much like in a horror movie back then during the nineties, everyone had that haunted house, you know, I did in, in, yeah, in the and... middle of the town that you thought was haunted. Yeah. And in this case, there's always that weird dude down the street that you'd hear rumors about. And that's what old man Marley is. You know, Buzz tells the story of the South Bend shovel slayer. He uses the salt to turn the bodies into mummies, not enough evidence to convict. So, I mean, I love that urban legend. They built him up as a scary character. It adds another element of fear for Kevin that he's home alone. And he knows this guy's right across the street. But then later there's this revelation of this guy's just alone. He's lonely and they do learn something from each other. It's probably the best amount of character development you see the entire movie. And for me, it also, Loisos, leads to the moment that always makes me cry. I mean, I looked over at you the other night and you were tearing up. And for me, most people find the most heartwarming moment to be when, when Kate McAllister comes back home and she sees her son again after all these days of her trying to get back there. But for me, it's actually old man Marley reuniting with his son and being able to hold his granddaughter and his family on Christmas day after having a falling out, because that's another element that happens as well with families. Sometimes you lose your temper and you say things you don't mean. And then, I mean, this has happened to me on numerous occasions. So I could personally relate to this. That's the moment that always makes me tear up. I mean, me just sitting here talking about it. It makes me tear up. Yeah, because the movie's all about family and kind of having a parallel to Kevin reconciling with his mother is um, a character that Kevin helps to reconnect with his family. And also, I don't I noticed it this time and I may have pointed it out. I may have not when we were watching it. But when you see old man Marley in the store earlier on in the film, he has a bloody bandage wrapped around his hand, right. a wound. Then when you see him again in the church, he just has a little band-aid on it. 
And then when you see him at the very end with his son, he doesn't, his hands all healed. He doesn't have a bandage on it. So you see the character have a physical healing or transformation as well. Look at that imagery. Look what you found in home alone. (laughs) I never noticed that myself either. I know that when he goes to the store earlier on in the movie, when, when he basically scares Kevin into running out of the store and stealing the toothbrush, he's going in because his hand is bandaged and he's going to get band-aids. That's why he's there. We don't know how he cut his hand. We don't know anything about that, but I mean, at that point in the movie, you may be thinking, Ooh, he might've hurt somebody or something happened, but um, 100% man. I mean, that to me is what all of those elements together in one pie <laughs> is what makes home alone so perfect. It really is. I mean, can you imagine being Siskel and Ebert? They both panned this movie. They fucking panned home alone. Roger Ebert, gave a th- i think it was like a three-star review to home alone three that is insanity <laughs> he he liked home alone three for some reason i don't remember why but i mean it's crazy to think the movie didn't do well critically but when you watch it yes there's a lot of sentimentality to it that's what most christmas movies had but there's this regal nature to the elements of, of christmas in this movie and i think that gives it more of a classic feel than some of the other christmas movies up until that point it is about family it's about settling your differences and coming together. And that's really what the holiday is. I mean, for most people, at least, yes, we get lots of good gifts. Yes. Whatever, you know, the the commercial side of it, but the movie has pure heart. It tugs on your heartstrings in more than one way. So this is a movie that can scare you. If you're a little kid, it's funny. It has the drama and it has the amazing slapstick comedy. I mean, what more could you ask for? Absolutely. And I mean, the movie wouldn't be half as good if it weren't for the talented people behind the scenes. I mean, we talked about the cinematographer, um, Julio Macat. We talked about um, some of the other things. But I mean, the production design, we have to talk about the set of the house, too, before we close out our discussion, because I didn't know this before I watched a documentary series on Netflix called The Movies That Made Us. It's not a house that they're shooting in. It's an abandoned high school gymnasium that yeah. they built a set into. And that production design is outstanding. Well, one thing I noticed even more so this time around, Loy Sauce, if you look at the colors inside the house, red, white, and green. There's like a few elements of pink here and there, but it's all Christmas colors in there. It's a little bit garish and it's, it really is a little bit over the top within the, you know, view of 2020 eyes. It's, but it's 1990. So it makes sense that it would be, well, yeah, and, and also it just it just fits in with the Christmas aesthetic. I mean, me personally, I would not have a red wall contrasting with a green wall, <laughs> but because it's a Christmas movie, you kind of excuse it because it's just part of the aesthetic. Um, but yeah, really, really outstanding work on the house. The editor, Raja Gosnell, who went on to be a director of, in his own right, outstanding. I mean, this is just a brilliantly edited movie because I could see some kids kind of getting impatient to get to the wacky home invasion stuff, but there's not an ounce of fat on this movie. Like no. every every single scene is there for a reason, and it, it's either to provide humor or character or or suspense. And we watched the deleted scenes on the Blu-ray together, and we were like, "Damn, these these were wisely excised from the movie because they add nothing and they just slow down the pacing." Yeah, it's it's perfect pacing, perfect timing. The movie is, I mean. You're correct. There's not a single scene in this that doesn't matter. I like every scene in the movie. There's not even a single part where I'm like, I wish this wasn't in here. I want to fast forward. And as a kid, there would be movies that I'd like, I want to fast forward to this part. Home Alone wasn't one of them. You just, you couldn't take your eyes off the magnetism of Kevin McAllister played by Macaulay Culkin. I mean, this is his calling card. This is what made his career. Um, And I'm so thankful for it. He's on the top of my list. Those of our listeners that know that I like to try to meet actors and celebrities in the wild um he's on my list man and if you haven't listened to his podcast before um what is it the rabbit ears podcast that's right um it's pretty good he's pretty good uh your good buddy greg sestero from the room who who was so inspired by home alone by the way this is greg's one of greg's favorite movies i know his favorite movie is the truman show but uh home alone was kind of the film that inspired greg and he actually wrote a sequel he wrote a screenplay for a Home Alone 2 lost in Disney World where he cast himself as Kevin McAllister's friend and the two went on an adventure to Disney World. 
Uh, obviously, that wasn't made, <laughs> but he sent it to John Hughes, and he received a letter back. So Greg has his own story with Home Alone, but I've listened to Macaulay Culkin's podcast before. It's very, very good and extremely funny. Another element that we need to talk about, this movie almost didn't happen at all. That's right. I was just about to mention the movie started out as a Warner Brothers production. They were going to make it for a very what was considered a very low budget at the time. This is coming off of Batman, where they made like fucking a billion, not really, but you know what I mean? Like within 1989 terms, like a billion dollars. Um, but they were going to make this small Christmas movie for $10 million. Bob Daly greenlit the movie for that much. It ended up being like $14.7 million, And when they handed in the budget to the studio, they said, we're not going to do anything over thirteen point five. So when they said, we can't cut anything else out of this movie, Warner Brothers came into the studio and said, you're getting shut down. Well, the filmmakers illegally showed the script to 20th Century Fox, one of their buddies there. And which I guess at the time was not allowed. You weren't allowed to do that. Like if a movie was in production and it wasn't finished yet, you weren't allowed to shop it anywhere else. They got it into their hands. They said, I'll make this movie for $15 million. So it went over to 20th. Can you imagine how Warner Brothers must have felt? They would have had the number one movie two years in a row with Batman and Home Alone. Had Dude, Home Alone was a huge success. It was like number one at the box office for like 14 weeks. With an overall budget of around $18 million, it made almost $500 million at the box office. Juggernaut. Massive movie. It was the number one movie of 1990. So it's crazy to think. Yeah, it's a pretty remarkable outcome for a film that Warner Brothers had absolutely no faith in whatsoever. Well, you for, a mo- think, for a movie to make over 25 times its budget, that's insane. Well, you really do have to think. I mean, Home Alone did set the standard for holiday movies. Christmas Vacation came out the year before and was a success, but it wasn't a gargantuan hit or anything like that. So leading up to that, Christmas movies weren't thought of as like these huge box office blockbuster juggernauts. It just wasn't that. Then after Home Alone, then you saw other movies like that make a lot more money and have bigger productions and become more successful. I'm sure eventually, Lois Sauce. Maybe in two years, we'll do a 30th anniversary retrospective on Lost in New York. I'm a big fan of that one. Ugh. Yes. Yes. We'll have to talk about it at some point. Because Home Alone 2, it's the framework of a typical Don't spoil sequel. it. Don't spoil it. Can you hold on to that for two years for me? Please. Mm. Can you do that for me? If we're still around at that if point. If we're still alive. I'm, I'm sure we'll want to we'll discuss that. But I mean, this is our Home Alone episode. And I just want to thank all of our listeners for sticking with us here on the Epic Film Guys podcast and for joining us. I know it's not Christmas time yet. I know we may get some heat from people like, dude, it's not even December yet. But we wanted to release this on the actual anniversary date that the film was released, which is November 16th of 1990. Lois Haas, you yourself gave me some heat about wanting to release this that early, but... I didn't give you heat. I just think, um, for me at least, Christmas lasts until, you know, from the from the day after Thanksgiving to yes. January 2nd. That's that Christmas for me. That um, is correct. But, but, you know, watching Home Alone, re-watching it with you so early in November, I didn't have a problem with it because... It's an enjoyable movie. I could watch it pretty much any time. I just choose not to because it's Christmas to me. This movie is Christmas. And to your point earlier, to bring everything together, kind of wrap a nice bow on this, um, Home Alone is a movie that by all reason should not have worked. You know, on paper, its tone is all over the place. It ranges from, you know, extreme violence to this really kind of little sappy sentimentality. And based solely on that, you have to wonder uh, for who it's meant to appeal Uh, But the fact that it not only works, but it succeeds with flying colors is a testament to, you know, the talented and hardworking people behind the scenes or the sheer charisma of its cast or the strength of its screenplay um, or or the sure handedness of the direction. Let's just boil it down to this. It's It's a a Christmas miracle. It's It's a a, Christmas miracle. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's there's no other way around it. Lightning struck. Imperfection was realized out of that. And again, just wanted to thank you guys so much for listening to this with this early holiday Christmas treat. We hope you grab yourself a whole cheese pizza just for yourself and indulge in Home Alone. This is a movie I think it's close enough. I mean, with COVID and everything that's going on in the world right now, we all need something to look forward to. So bring in Christmas in a little early. I have no problem with that. We already have our tree up. 
We've got our Christmas lights out. Just a great time to be joyous and be positive. So we hope you guys enjoyed this episode and sticking with us here on the show. Um, I had an absolute blast talking about one of my favorite Christmas movies and one of my favorite movies of all time, Loisos. If our listeners today are new to the show, why don't you tell them where they can find the epic film, guys? You can find us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Epic Film Guys. And you can also feel free to join in our fan community, the Hopesters Dumpster, where you can chat movies with us. Facebook.com slash groups slash Epic Film Guys. Come hang out. We'd love to have you. Once again, we want to thank each and every one of you for listening. And until next time, we will see you at the movies.